Great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Yeah, so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you got it, man. You're very welcome. And you know, we always like to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a long, complicated story, like all of ours. Um, you know, for me, I grew up in a tiny little town, um, was always connected to trees and wood products. Um, I saw my forest get really decimated um, by the effects of climate change and felt like I wanted to dedicate my life to addressing that in, in bigger and bigger ways. Spent a lot of time in technical science, a lot of time really in labs, thinking about how we use chemistry and some of these different other processes to address climate change. At the same time, I was a, a backcountry guide. Um, really fell in love with leading small teams in intense situations when you got limited information and limited resources. And through all of that, through the leadership growth, through that learning, and then also really through my deep understanding of climate science, recognize that, hey, I, I really want to start an organization that can, can be impactful. Um, so from that, you know, I, I was working on federal policy, was recognizing this big gap between incoming climate funds and real local scalable solutions that also put people first and have a really strong social centric side of of their work um, and really wanted to start and create one. So kicked off and started Cambium Carbon, where we use technology to build local regenerative supply chains. And it's been a journey um, from there. And it's been a ton of learning along the way and couldn't have done it without so many, so many helping hands. So that's that's where I'm at and, and how I'm here. Definitely, man. Yeah. And let's and let's keep the journey going. Um, wh where exactly did it start? Wh what small town are you from? And then uh, where did you yeah. go to school? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Sandia Park, um, which is a tiny town outside of Albuquerque in New Mexico. Um, I went to um, Cal Poly for undergrad in San Luis Obispo. Um, I actually have two degrees in environmental management, which is I always think is a little bit hilarious because it's sort of this hand wavy degree managing the environment. Um, but um, you know, it really gave me this strong foundation in technical science, in policy, and, and a, a really systems thinking approach. Um, one of the big things that I also learned during my time at Cal Poly was how to really start um, and to start my own, you know, initiative. Um, you know, a big part of that for me was I had this great internship my first summer. I worked at the National Labs doing hydrogen um, fuel cell research. And then my second summer, I was all set up to work with a professor and I felt like I had, had this path and I was good to go. And then they just bailed on me. Um, they were just gone and like non-responsive. My whole summer fell through and I ended up working landscaping all summer to, to, to pay the bills. Um, so I shoveled sand for eight hours a day every day. Um, I was um, digging trenches um, to install some, some sewer lines in Morro Bay. And during that summer, I was like, all right, I need to like nothing is ever going to be handed to me. Um, and I, I already knew that in lots of ways. But that was the, like the biggest moment for me of really seeing that and, and feeling it. Um, and, you know, just decided that, all right, I'm going to have to start my own organization um, in school. So I started a research group. Um, I started leading another team, um, sort of pitched it into the facilities department and um, was able to, to work three jobs for the rest of, of college and make it happen um, and, and really learned in that space that if you want something you got to create it um, and, and so that's where i came out of from right oh the good old days of just shoveling sand man you know simple man <laughs> so be before we get into what you're doing today i really want to take some time to explore your kind of vision of the future in the u.s and you're coming at it from an environmental management perspective which is the exact kind of perspective that i'd love to hear i think it's sure. a topic that we can't we can't cover enough so 
where where do you want to see this country in the future? What do you see the U.S. becoming in our generation? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think you know there's there's three things that I would I would really love to see you know from my perspective, particularly on the climate side. One, I want us to be a climate leader. Um, I think that true leadership is accepting some of the challenges that come with that, accepting some of the the you know economic losses and shifting economies that come with that. And then also really leading into the opportunities and the transformational economy that we really want to see. So the first piece is really taking on that leadership piece um, as, as a country um, and, and being seen on the world stage and helping to elevate other countries in a really, really meaningful way. Um, you know, a lot of our action is always tempered. Um, we're, I feel like we're always trying to make sure that we are supporting lots of different agendas, which is good. That's part of how democracy works. And also, um, we, we also need to really push and be a lot more ambitious in terms of our leadership. I think the second thing I would really love to see is everybody individually recognizing that you know, we're a country that is all about you know, the classic quintessential and tropey American dream is, you know, do it yourself, right? You know, you can create anything that you want in this country. And I think that what I would love to see is, is us going after creating more jobs, more local um, environmental impact, and really collectively addressing climate change, while also really trying to address some of the systemic social issues and trying to do that in a much bigger and more ambitious way. And then the final thing is, you know, really being able to believe that we can create and a quality of life that, you know, I think sometimes we position climate change as like, all right, if we're going to really address this, we have to shift and eliminate everything that we do and everything that we like. And I think there's a reality to a part of that. Like, I think we need to do less of some things. And I think that we can really do less of some things and still have amazing, amazing lives. And also, I, I really believe in a future where we get to 2100 and it's equitable, it's livable. We've really, you know, learned how to deal with um, climate change and have significantly mitigated it and are still able to live a really high quality of life um, and have really emphasized elevating that, you know, across our country and then also uh, more broadly as well. So that's that's the big things that I, I really envision. Yeah. So let me get this straight. You want us to be stewards of the planet, make the make the whole world and environment a better place. You want people to recognize that they can do anything, and you want us to all have um, great quality of life, meaningful and fun lives. Who's not going to be on board with that, man? Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's simple, right? And it's it's so easy to do, as you know. Everyone, you know, it's, it's just everyone's unified, and you know, it's all easy. No, it's a it's a huge, huge challenge. Um, but one of the biggest things I believe is you have to believe in something in order to ever go after it. Um, and nothing that you didn't believe in ever came true. And so really, you know, believing that we have to do that. And then, you know, it's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to act on it. And it's another thing to really think about the systems and the actual barriers that limit it. And then also have that sort of that grit to push through it over and over. And something I'm constantly working on, something that I see so many other people really working on as well. And it's it's really important to have, have all of that together. As far as the climate leadership side, I would make the argument that we are responsible to be the climate leading nation. We have created the most emissions out of any nation that's ever existed. And we've also experienced the most prosperity. Um, Uncle Ben, great power, great responsibility. It's legit. It's a real thing. I, I personally believe it. That's why I spend all my time trying to help other people make the world a better place. What I want to ask you, Ben, is how can we use this idea 
or this scientific reality of positive feedback loops to improve our world. Now, I really focus on the economic machine. The more money you put in, the more money you get out. I see that as kind of a positive yeah. feedback loop, and that's how I try to tackle climate change. What are your thoughts on how we can use positive feedback loops to improve our world? And that means um, when you do one thing, it makes something happen twice as much, or do you want to give a more eloquent exactly. explanation of what a feedback loop is? No, that's, that's, that's a great way to explain it. You know, there's positive and negative feedback loops. Simplest one is positive. You add something into a system and you get more of it. Um, that system naturally creates more of it. A negative feedback loop is something that, you know, mitigates that. So if you put more in, you get less out um, and there's more um, sort of restriction there. And so, you know, the big thing there is, you know, we want to transform and this is how I think about it in our startup is traditionally right now, you know, as companies get bigger, right, their impact on the world gets worse and worse and worse. And like those two sort of that growth and that negative impact are directly related. Um, and what we're really trying to shift is first shifting to a model where as we grow, our cumulative impact across every variable is also really getting better and that we are really, really creating that impact. And so that as we grow, we can really address that. But the whole argument I make in my tech talk is that that's awesome. And that is like super ambitious and is going to be so challenging for us to get there. And I, I certainly, I live it every day. It is not easy to, to do that. Um, and we've got a long way to go to get there. But if we're going to really get out of this crisis, that's still a linear solution. It's still, you know, one unit of growth, you know, economically is one unit of impact. And that's just not what the climate, um, you know, problem is, you know, it's an exponential solution because of all of these positive feedbacks in the climate system, you know, you need to be creating solutions that can operate on that same order of magnitude. What does that mean, right? Is we need solutions that are really being put out that have, you know, ex exponential impact around it. And I don't claim to have all of those, um, you know, figured out. Um, I think it's something that what I'm really trying to push is for us to collectively think, great, all right, you've got this awesome model, you know, you're helping connect real estate to the environment. How can you take that and create, you know, domino effects off of what you're doing? And what are the other ways to do that? You know, is it like investing in other local entrepreneurs where those small investments, you know, then turn into way outsized impact and that small amount can go way bigger, you know, things like that um, are, are ways that we can think about it. There's also a lot more, you know, thinking that has to come across every sector to really unlock those positive feedback loops in a really positive, impactful way. It's interesting you mentioned that because that's exactly what I want to do. So um, right now, the way my business works is when someone buys a house with my company, they get to donate half of the commissions to a 501c3 that's working on mitigating climate change, specifically decarbonization or carbon removal. Um, but eventually, I'm going to be able to set up, or quite soon, really, I'll be able to set up a foundation, which will allow me to create a separate vehicle that we can run the funds through that will allow people to donate money to startups as well. So they'll have the choice to maybe they're going to donate $10,000 to a nonprofit and $5,000 to a startup. That would be if they sell a pretty expensive house. But um, one way or the other, that, that's kind of where, I, where I'm going. Can you explain your, your, like, fully explain your idea of like a fifth generation business and kind of where it came? because you were hinting at it with with the feedback loop discussion yeah i love that I, I love your idea of again how can we take what you're doing already and, and then take keep taking it to the next level and keep creating all right you've got this pool of capital how can you unlock more sustainable capital so that that money goes a lot further for a lot longer i think that's that's spot on um you know the fifth generation idea um is you know 
a lot of folks have thought about it in different ways. This is my framework for thinking about it. You know, really what it is, is, you know, sort of first generation companies are companies like I was initially describing, right, which just operate in this way, which is most companies right now, where they do a lot of growth um, as a company, and they do a lot of harm in this world, whether it's impact on the planet overall, whether it's, you know, social and some of those other harms. And then a lot of companies will do a little bit of charity, right, just like a little bit of, you know, something in the charity model, well, they give something back, right. And that's fine. But if you look at the cumulative impact that those companies have on the world, they're super bad. Like it's really negative. Um, it's, it's not a good outcome. And then if you think about um, sort of the most ambitious companies from a climate perspective, you know, companies that have committed to, you know, carbon removal and, you know, really committed to like, hey, we are going to get to net neutrality, um, you know, and there's lots of different ways and there's ways to do that well and ways to do that poorly. But that still cumulatively is doing nothing good, right? And it's amazing. We should celebrate it. We should push for it. But also we shouldn't accept it, right? We should be thinking way beyond it. And, um, you know, that is starting to become a little bit of the, the new norm. It's like, great, we're shooting for net neutral within a lot of companies. But we have to be thinking way beyond that. And so that's where, um, you know, I think the next thing, you know, if you look at somebody like Microsoft committing to undo their historical emissions, that's great. What does that mean? lifetime of the entire company, they have contributed exactly zero to addressing the climate crisis, right? They've done nothing in, it's amazing. Like it's wonderful and it's so ambitious and it's like really on the forefront and we need that. And also they've done nothing to address it, right? And so we have to, we have to think well beyond that. Yeah. And you can kind of keep going with this. And I find it really interesting. And this is why I'm obsessed with regenerative economics. And this is why I wanted to cover this topic. I think it's fundamental to the way humans have humans can live in an idealized way of life whether it's a dream or it's reality it's up to you to decide now it's interesting how everyone's gonna everyone eventually reaches if you really really think about oh wait there's more than just me on this planet what can i do to be the best possible version of myself now people say it in all different ways you might call it a fifth generation business or a fifth generation way of living the futuristic way um, Paul Hawken and, and Kate Raworth might call it regenerative economics. I call it enlightened self-interest, the idea of considering others above yourself being the best way to serve yourself at the deepest and most fulfilling level. Jesus called it self-giving love. This has been going on forever. We're always talking about the same stuff yeah. over and over again. Um, and if you live it out, you really can can feel the value that you're providing not just to the world, but to yourself. And I think that if you can get past the logic of, oh, if I don't make money, I'm not going to eat and, and really try to think about what can I do to be better every single day, I think you eventually reach this conclusion that the best way you could possibly be is to always be considering how can I, me being here makes the world better off because I exist. That's what that is. And that's why I really believe in the, 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 the corporation model, I really think it is designed that way. And it just got a little messed up in the last few years. So I love your perspective, man. But uh, why don't you tell me about your experience at the Psy City Accelerator and then how we got to Cambium? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just one last thought and then I'll, yeah, I'll happy to totally. dive into that. Um, you know, I think that the last piece of that, and you were talking about this earlier, like with the US being responsible, right? Like we are the biggest problem. We should take responsibility for that. I think part of that too, and what you're touching on is like, you know, part of this is around privilege and being able to go after these things and being able to like start a business 
comes from having the stability to, to go through that. Right. And, and so recognizing that, that, you know, that looks different for everyone and that we are all people who can all do better um, in our own ways and, you know, really being ambitious with that. And I think that's, that's one of the, I think those broader messages, right. Is like, how can we all in our own context, within our own limitations, find ways that we can be better to other people and also like recognize that and, and understand that there's all of these different contexts. And so I think that's, you know, a really good, good, important part of this as well. It's a lifelong journey, man. And it should be, it it's a joy to be on it, you know? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, happy to talk about, um, Sci City had a great experience. Um, you know, Sci City is the, the Yale accelerator, um, which was a really great learning spot. I personally never imagined myself at an institution like that. Um, and definitely have been really honored. Um, and also know that there's like some, some big, you know, parts of complexity that come from that space. Um, but had a really great experience, um, at Sci City learned a lot. Um, I think, you know, for me, I had never been exposed to, to business and like had no, no understanding of a lot of the fundamental components. And what I really learned is how to get good at learning um, and that that was so, so critical. And then the second thing is like learning how to like how important it is to have the, the right people around you um, and that asking for help is so, so critical, particularly when you're asking for, you know, support from like from my co-founders initially and then from advisors and mentors and and all of the interns and different folks who who contributed along the way um you know i i just i look back at where where we were versus where we are now and it's i can't even imagine how different those two two spots are and it's because so many different people invested and gave different parts of themselves and brought in a diverse perspective and, and thinking um, and helped us grow um, and pushed us and pushed us to be better and pushed us to be more unequivocally good and um, you know all of that really started um, you know while I was I was at Sci City so definitely a big part of that experience. So the accelerator it was all about the people you were surrounded by, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I that's our first core value is people first. Um, I think it's all all about the people. Cool. All right. So, so who are, who are you, man? What, what's Cambium Carbon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned this briefly, but, but we use technology to build regenerative supply chains. We're focused just on wood first. We're basically going after this idea of, you know, you mentioned this earlier as well, but how do we just go back to um, local production? That's sort of the, the most simple, um, you know, piece of this. It's not going to make sense for, for every material type. There's tons of industries where it doesn't make sense. There's lots of really big benefits of globalization. There's also some real downsides and being able to do more local production is huge, um, both from eliminating transportation as well as local jobs creation. And so those are the two big things that we are we're really touting. So we're a public benefit corporation. We're all about, you know, really investing locally. Um, what does that actually look like, right? Like what, what, what does this look like as a business? It basically looks like we help local manufacturers of so people who are salvaging local waste. Um, again, right now that is salvaging local wood and then the secondary producers. So you can think about local wood shops, you know, local flooring manufacturers, all of those folks. We help them run their business more efficiently um, using our technology. And then we work on the other side of the market as well. So we work with all these large buyers, you know, big brands um, who want to be able to purchase locally, 
but wouldn't be able to do that at scale right now. They would have to work individually with each of the shops and that would never like be a connection that can actually be made. And so we help them source products locally in lots of different cities. And so that's the, the sort of big change is like, hey, you can source nationally, but it's produced locally from a lot of different manufacturers at the same quality, all from local materials. And that's, that's what we're really going after. And where did this idea come from initially? This idea started, um, basically started with, I recognized there was a big problem in terms of how we treat trees in cities. Um, and I went and I learned about it and we spent about our first year just learning, just asking questions. We got a grant from the Nature Conservancy. We had about 31 cities apply to be a part of our first sort of exploratory cohort. And in that process, we learned over and over and over this is a huge, huge problem. This is a problem that's way bigger than I expected. You know, more trees that are salvageable fall in our cities than our national forests. That volume of, of wood is massive. And most of it's ending up in landfill or turned into a really low value product. And so we discovered this problem. And then through that process of listening, asking questions, you know, throwing solutions out there, getting feedback, really, really being self-critical, we learned about, hey, there's a really big opportunity to be an aggregated technology platform that brings these things together and still continuing to really drive our impact work on, on the, the community side and on the city side. So when these trees fall in a city, the reason they're being put into landfills is because it's the most convenient thing to do. The city just needs to get it off the street and get rid of it. And that's the main reason why that's happening. Is that right? Yeah. So you can think about, all right, you know, picture a tree, right? And it, it's going to come down for, you know, any number of reasons because we're doing new development, right? Our cities are growing. <laughs> and so we have to take down some of the existing green infrastructure because it's old, you know, lots of cities, city trees are, are really at the end of their life because of pests, or maybe it came down naturally in a storm. So the tree is coming down right now. Who actually takes that tree down? Well, usually it's a private tree care company or it's a city contractor, you know, depends on the city, depends on the tree. Both of those are incentivized to dispose of that as economically as possible, right? So they're looking for the cheapest disposal option. And oftentimes that is sending it to landfill where you're still paying a tipping fee and it still costs money, but it's the easiest, it's the most convenient. Sometimes it's burning it. In lots of cities, there's private wood burn piles where we actually just burn a lot of wood um, that comes down or it's mulching it, which is fine in some cases, but from a climate perspective, you're basically spreading out that carbon, letting it decompose and off gas. And so you're not really storing it in any sort of meaningful manner. And so that's really wise because the incentives are to dispose of it as quickly as possible. And we don't have enough infrastructure to really capture it at volume yet. And so that's something that we're really helping with. Does it ever just drive you crazy how we talk about how we want to be super efficient in this country? We want to make all the money and have all the cool stuff, but we're like glaringly inefficient in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally right. And I think the thing that frustrates me the most about all of this is that there is so many good ideas out there. And I think, again, like look at the, the first 20 minutes of our conversation, like plenty of great ideas, lots of quixotic, idealistic, you know, thoughts. There's lots and lots of that. The thing that I think we miss is how do we connect that 
to every single day in our action, right? Mm. And how do we connect that into like real meaningful long-term work? And that's something we're, we're struggling with as an organization. We think about it all the time is how do we build systems? And one of our favorite quotes, um, you know, is you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And I think that's a great example. Like talking about these inefficient, you know, use systems for trees. It's like, yeah, of course, every single person at the city is going to be like, yeah, we should save that wood. But how do we actually do that? Like we need coordination. We need to put in, you know, a little bit of infrastructure investment. We need to like engage the private sector. We need to have a platform that connects all of this. And then we need to have a market output for it. And so we're trying to build all of those components, but it's all about that action and like getting over all of those near-term hurdles. So what you're building is specifically called a circular economy platform, right? Yeah. Are there any of these that already exist either in the U.S. or outside and how do they kind of work? Yeah, there's there's a number of different ones. Um, there's none that are scaled within wood products, um, but there's some other great examples. Um, you know, Reaply is is one of the best examples. We, we love them. I was actually just on their podcast as well, but they're an amazing U.S.-based startup um, who is a little bit further along than we are, focused more on sort of assets. Um, so if you think about a big company and, you know, you can, you can look them up, they'll, they'll explain it better than I do, but, you know, big company, you have all of these assets, you've got, you know, furniture, you've got HVAC equipment, you've got all these different things in your facilities and things change. Like you move facilities, you know, you are selling a building or you buy a new company and, and being able to reuse and upcycle a lot of those different components is, is actually not done um, efficiently at all. And so they really have a platform that helps you do that across a lot of different um, you know, products. And it's an amazing example. Um, I was also reflecting with them. One of the biggest challenges of a circular economy is you touch all of these different stakeholders. Like our company, mm -hmm. it's not just like we have to engage with and message and work with one type of person. We're working with city officials. We are working with tree care services. We're working with sawmills. We're working with, you know, technology. It's where we work on the engineering side. We're working with, you know, venture capital investors. We're working with philanthropic investors. Like it's it's across the board, um, which is exciting because that's that's how we think about holistic impact. It's also challenging. It's it's a challenge for sure. How big is the team right now? So we are. 19. Um, we just finished our second acquisition. So we, we brought in an amazing wood product shop in Baltimore, which we're super, super excited about. It's going to give us some real local expertise and help us scale across the country and, and continue to bring value um, and make sure the software we're building really, really works. And again, to that point that I was making a second ago is we know the big vision. We know where we want it to go to get mm -hmm. it there, to make it actually usable, to make it actually deliver value for you know our, our mill shops across the country takes all of that testing and that expertise. And so we're really excited to have them um, on board internally. We're also hiring for about 10 roles right now. So really excited to bring on some, some new folks. Really excited to have you bring some people on. I think it's awesome. Let's let's get down to the more specific kind of day-to-day. -day. Your first, I don't even want to call it product. Your first kind of focal point is this urban wood waste. I know you said there was a lot. How, how big an opportunity is this wood waste right now? Like numbers wise in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. So 36 million trees fall in um, cities every year. That's about 46 million tons of wood waste. Um, you know, sort of, I, I hate market sizing as a, as a scientist because it always feels so hand-wavy to me, but that's 
somewhere totally. around $26 billion in total value. If it was captured and turned into its highest and best use, you're never going to capture all of that, but it's, it's, it's in the billions, right? It's, it's a huge, huge opportunity of, of resources that we're wasting. And just to put like the size and scale on that, you know, Weyerhaeuser, which is the number one timber products company um, in the U.S. in 2020, they harvested um, 32 million tons of timber from forests, right, for paper and then also to turn into two by fours, you know, structural timber. And, you know, that is significantly less than the 46 million tons of wood that fell in cities of the year. Are they the same? No, they're definitely, they're different waste streams. There's different um, needs and uses for each. And we should, we should continue to support traditional forestry as well. But just to paint the scale of the amount of resources that are coming down, it's massive. It's a huge, huge amount. And isn't there specific aspects of wood waste that would make it like not feasible for product manufacturing? Like, isn't it falling for a reason or what do you know about that? Yeah, it depends. I mean, I think that this goes into something that I think is, is really important, which is it's like, what do we value? Um, you know, if you think about one of the companies that I love is imperfect foods, you know, they, they do mm -hmm. a great job bringing in like food that would have gone to waste or would not traditionally reach a consumer, um, you know, in a grocery store, like an apple that looks slightly discolored or slightly misshapen. It's the same apple. It's delicious. And instead, like we're throwing it away and they've got a great solution where they're helping to, you know, really bring that in. Um, we want to do the same thing. You know, we want to help realize that you know, slight character in, in a piece of wood, a new species that you've never heard of or seen before that can be sourced locally is amazing. It doesn't change your experience. It can actually enhance it, right? You know, it, it gives you something that is unique, that is connected to the street that you grew up on, you know, or is the tree that your parents got married under, you know, there's stories and there's connection there. Um, and that really shifts how people think about it. So the short end of, of that answer is yes, each tree is different. Um, again, they come down for lots of different reasons. You know, only a relatively small percentage, you know, 10 to 20% of the trees that are coming down can be turned into something like a furniture or a hardwood, um, you know, flooring. A lot of that is going to be sort of mid-tier, um, you know, products. You can think like, you know, crates, pallets, um, you know, pellets as well. And then, you know, a lot of that volume is best ending up in, you know, some sort of stable, uh, you know, carbon compound, something like a biochar. Um, there's a lot of complexity within that process as well. But um, thinking about how we have the highest and best use for each of those sort of, you know, trees is, is really important. And what that takes is a really trained workforce who is able to deal with the complexity of each tree being different. And that's a big challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity. And who would who would be determining that? Yeah, so it's it can happen at a few different points. You know, the best place for it to happen is before the tree ever comes down, right? Is to do that analysis and to look at it and say, great, hey, these four trees like look like they can be salvaged and turned into this. They need to be connected with this partner and be transported and cut down in this way. You know, these three other ones are, you know, like have interior rot or they are like too small or you know and those best are ending up in again a biochar output or in a composting facility and you know that happens on the front end so we work with a lot of real estate companies you know large companies that do development um, and are taking down trees to help them understand how they can you know save those trees instead of sending them to landfill so it can happen on the front end so we also work with cities a lot to think about hey we've got an incoming storm you know how do we think about having you know readiness to actually capture that wood 
The second place it happens is the tree care service, like the people who are actually cutting down the tree, right? And what I would encourage um, for you and for any listener is when you're walking around or driving around, you see trees coming down all the time. Like you'll start noticing it. You'll see wood on the side of the road. You'll see a company with, you know, some guys, you know, up in a tree cutting it down. And think about where that goes or ask them, ask the arborists, um, hey, where does this wood end up? And likely it's going to be mulched. Um, That's most likely what's going to happen to it. And so it starts there as well. But for them, again, these are local businesses. What they need is, you know, cost-effective solutions that are not far away, right? And so that's where if we can help enable all of these local manufacturers to be able to take in way more wood, then we can help downstream. We can help all of those arborists who are taking down the trees. Oh, great. Here's a free disposal spot. Just bring it right there. Boom. We're good to go. And so that's that's how we really think about it. So can you kind of walk me through how this service would work? Let's like, I guess I think the, most, the easiest way is to kind of just pick a city that you've never worked in before. And then if you were to be like, okay, for example, you're in DC, like we're going to bring the Cambium service to DC. How would you go about doing that? Bringing it all the way to a, whatever it is, wood flooring or rocking chair or, or however you want to go about this. I'm really interested to see how it, how it works. Sure. I mean, why don't, why don't we take Boulder? Um, you know, Boulder, yeah, where, yeah. Where do it. Um, so what we do is, is we approach it from several different sides. And this goes for, to our theory of change, which is we believe the impact we want to see doesn't come from just engaging with a singular solution. It engages a, a system of solutions. And so what does that actually look like? It means that we are working with the city. So we would work with the city and cities are all at different pers- you know, points in their own journey addressing this. Some have not even started. Some are pretty far along. And so we would listen and understand what what is happening right now. And then we would help the city understand how many trees are coming down. Why are they coming down? How can we help not have them come down? Like the best tree is a living one. And that's something that we're always trying to support. And then if they are coming down, who are the existing players? And so we do some more of that sort of like high level analysis. We can, we do the economic analysis behind it. We help bring in policy and incentivize, create the public sector incentives to actually capture this wood waste, create those enabling conditions. At the same time, we'll bring in the other two parts of our business, which is our software and our technology, where we are working with all of the existing local wood shops um, to help them run their businesses more efficiently to start using this type of wood and to be able to track it, to be able to market it and sell it. And so that's an actual software solution um, that we are bringing into these local folks. And then we bring in the demand as well. So we're working on building out national demand so that when we open up a new market, say we come into Boulder and we say, great, we're really working here, then we can go ahead and already have large purchase orders that are ready to go for these local shops. And that can be really transformational because right now, a lot of our producers, they do more one-offs. And what we're really trying to bring them is larger recurring orders, which can help them really grow their businesses. They can get a new kiln, you know, they can get a, a new wood miser, something to help them really scale, um, you know, their, their business. And that's, that's a huge opportunity. So that's what we would do is we would engage the public side, help really build out that goodwill, help build out the actual numbers and the analysis that you need for policy change. And at the same time, day one, we are actively working with local shops to help them grow their business and start saving more and more of this wood. All right, man. I'm, I'm fully convinced that you're creating value, but how is your business model actually working? Like, where are you yeah. making like money? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we really do it in three ways, in the same same three. So we work as consultants with the city. I mean, classic consulting model, um, you know, and that's okay. um, 
you know, something that is really impactful. It's not super scalable, um, you know, from a business perspective, but it's really important. It's also helps us enter markets and it also connects us to the impact that we really want to see. The second is, you know, our, our software solution. Um, we really are a, a SaaS company. So we charge a monthly subscription fee. And then we also, as we help facilitate these transactions, we also charge a transaction fee. Um, so that's how we can help, um, you know, folks sell more wood. And then we benefit from a small portion of that. And then the final piece is when we work with these large national buyers and broker these orders um, with the, the local manufacturers, we take a brokerage fee on that as well. So that's how we sort of work across three different um, revenue and income streams. Do you see any of those kind of expanding larger than the other? I know you mentioned that the consulting is not as scalable, of course, as selling software. Have you put any thought into how this, it seems like they all work together pretty nice in, in synchrony, but like, have you had success in one avenue or in the other? And then I'm also curious where you're kind of reinvesting the capital to continue to grow the, the venture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the big thing for us is it all ultimately is one product and one goal, which is as much of this wood that we can move through our platform to a stable, durable product that is keeping that carbon out of the atmosphere. And we can pick up value along the way, that's how we win. And we really see our technology platform trace as the, the path to do that. Right now, the consulting component, as well as the brokerage component are a little bit disconnected from trace. Um, that's part of the truth in the market. As we're scaling, all of that is gonna ultimately be connected. So let me paint you a picture of where we're gonna be in five years. We are gonna be working with cities to easily be able to track, understand, predict um, what trees are coming down, why are they coming down, that will immediately integrate into the local tree service so the people would actually take it down. Um, they'll be able to already know before you pull up on a job, what should I be doing with this tree? What is the highest and best use? How should I think about taking it down? Because again, if you think about cutting down a tree, right? If you cut it into one big log, you can turn it into really long boards. If you cut it into little cookies, you can't do much with it. So thinking about we're going to cut it down in the most effective, efficient way, that's already going to have a destination in mind um, for where it can be processed. And then that business that does the milling, the drying, and then also the fabrication is going to have a lot of new orders. That wood that's coming down, even before it's taken down, has already got a destination. Um, so it's going to be connected into the much broader market, into these larger orders. Um, and then that all comes back into the customer. So the customer ultimately is you know, going to purchase a table and is going to be able to see <clears throat> exactly who touched it along every single phase, exactly the carbon impacts, exactly the social impacts. And then um, because we're a, a public benefit corporation, 15% of our profits go directly back into supporting local organizations who are planting trees focused on tree equity with communities. And so you can see all of that and all of that connects. Um, and because we have so much data visibility, we can also you know, address some of the other incentive issues. You know, One of the biggest things that we're super aware of is we need to create a market for this wood in order to save it. But we need to also make sure that along the way, we don't create the incentives to cut down trees that shouldn't be cut down. Like that is the last thing that we want to incentivize. And so we're working really, really diligently to make sure that we have credibility on why are these trees coming down? Were they coming down naturally? And that's really um, something that we're able to ensure and something that is so important for us as we continue to grow. So that's that's what we're, we're building towards. Awesome. So you're investing 15% of, of, was it, you say, was it revenue? It's a profits, yeah. Of profits into tree planting initiatives. 
Mm-hmm. It's all into local tree planting. Yep. Oh, man. I love that. That's so awesome. How are you picking where to reinvest? Are you reinvesting in areas that you've gotten income from the cut down trees or how's, how's that work? Yeah. So we focus, um, you know, we focus on the cities that we work in. Um, and you know, what that really means is it creates that full circular story, um, where, you know, a really great example is in Baltimore. Um, we have this project with Towson university, building a new student union for entrepreneurship. Um, we did all of their tables and, and some benches in there. And that was all from locally salvaged, naturally fallen wood in Baltimore, um, produced um, at one of the local shops um, through our platform, you know, beautiful outcome. And then also replanted, uh, you know, those trees with the Baltimore Tree Trust and the Pigtown neighborhood. And we really, you know, focus on finding local partners who know the communities. We did, we don't know um, lots of the communities that we work in. I mean, we, we know them, but we don't know them. We don't live it. Um, and so making sure we can find a community partner who really understands that space, who is really focused on tree equity. So making sure we're thinking about planting trees for, with folks who have traditionally been left out, but doing that in a way that is not like, hey, we're just going to drop a tree in your neighborhood and we're going to leave. It's, hey, we're really going to work with you. Do you want this tree? How can we help you support taking care of this tree? How can we help you support, you know, thinking about um, really growing this this community more broadly? And so um, that's a big part of how we really select and have found, um, you know, some amazing organizations in lots of the cities we work in. One of the things that made me really excited about talking to you is that I love that the way that you look from the end backwards. And I think that that's really essential for trying to create the best possible product or service. What's your end result? What's your vision? What's your mission? And something really interesting I'm picking up on about your business is that you're creating a nationwide, potentially a a global company that specifically focuses on supporting local businesses. And that's really interesting. It's not like a Walmart that comes in and takes all the profits for itself. It's it's really a, a model that can work everywhere, but it's it's reliant on supporting the businesses in the local community. And I think that's that's really, really awesome. Who who are you currently working with at the moment? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a great point. And one of the big things I think about all the time is how do we align our incentives? And for us, we win as a business in terms of impact and in terms of revenue when we help local businesses be more successful. And we've been very intentional about setting up our revenue model that way so that we don't get prescriptive, so that we don't become you know a company that comes in and, you know, takes over a local market, we want to really enable the local market and help it grow, help increase the jobs, help them connect nationally, and really, you know, provide bigger and bigger value. Um, You know, who we're working with, so we work with about 130 different shops across the country. Um, We're still rapidly growing our network of trusted suppliers um, who can really supply this wood, who do it ethically. We do a lot of quality assurance to make sure um, that really works. And so that's that's the supply side, Um, you know, on the buy side. um, I can't tell you everybody yet, but super soon um, we've got some pretty exciting partnerships that are coming out with some big national brands um, that we're really launching with, um, which is going to be awesome. So that's that's that piece. And then on the city side, you know, we're working right now um, in Philadelphia in a really big way, in Baltimore and San Diego, as well as um, in Boulder, in, as well as in Minneapolis. Um, so that's sort of our, our list of cities where we're super active with projects currently. We've touched a, a number of other cities as well, um, but that's that's where we're at right now. Yeah, that's 
It's very promising. Again, obviously very much just the beginning. Now, I did just make a criticism of Walmart for crushing local businesses. But the interesting about company, any interesting thing about companies like Amazon and Walmart, two of, if not the largest corporations and most successful, largest revenue driving companies in the world have built their business upon bringing up other people's products and services. That's how they became successful. They've enabled, whether you like it or not, the people who make stuff on Alibaba are able to sell it in the US. They've elevated small retailers and allowed them to reach the whole planet. So that's just just something something to be said about that kind of business model of trying to bring up other people, bringing it back to the enlightened self-interest thing. I really think that is the core of what makes businesses successful. Um, what are your kind of final thoughts on how we can make companies like the like the ones you're create the one that you're creating or the ones that we've described the idealized kind of you know the norm around the world? How can we make most companies net positive? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's a few things. I think it's it's being really direct and honest with ourselves in terms of what we do as individuals, in terms of the choices we make in terms of having way more power than I think we give ourselves credit to, you know, we, we get to vote every single day with our dollars. And if we aren't doing the research, if we are not, you know, ethically doing that across every single thing that we purchase, we are not really living out the mission and we're not really helping to elevate these types of solutions. And so I think that first piece is like, doing a better job, really being honest with ourselves about the choices that we make and, and how we can live a more sustainable life. I think the second piece is, you know, I think that perfect is the enemy of the good and that trying to be perfect is really, really critical. And that's something we think about all the time where we want to have the highest standards to really try to address all sides of the environmental and social issues we touch. And we also know that we're not going to get it right. We also know that we have to push and we have to get to scale before we can see some of the bigger change that we want to want to see happen. And so we're trying to walk that line between we have to grow, we have to find that impact. And also every single step, we want to make sure we're doing that in an unequivocally good way. And I think, you know, really pushing to have that ambition. And it's so good that we hold, you know, companies and people accountable at that highest level. And also we I want to make sure we live in a world that also has the grace to fail, right? And that's something that I think is super important. So walking that line as well. Um, I think those are the two biggest things for me is, is, you know, really having that individual sense of agency and that sense of action and that sense of belief, and then really being ambitious and bold and having super, super high standards, but also not having that be, you know, enabling paralysis and limiting our, our, our ability to act. There was a lot of value in what you just said. And, and I'll, I'll respond with this. I mean, if you did get it all right, right away, man, what else would you have to do for the next 40 years when you're trying to build the business? Oh, we got it all right. Every, I got all the answers. We're done. It's kind of like the beauty of, of humanity is the continuing quest to learn the unlimited amount of information that's out there, to learn more and more, become better and better and better. But it's it's cool to meet someone like you who has a really nice compass, or at least I really respect the direction that you're headed. So thanks so much for taking some time to come on the podcast, man. Really great having you. Any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building this better world that you and I are obviously very clearly committed to? Yeah, I mean, love your approach. Thanks for the great conversation. I mean, I guess my last piece of advice is get good at listening um, and get good at finding good advice. I mean, something that I learned in my my time is 
there are people who you'll ask for advice and they'll just talk at you. I mean, you know, you're listening to me right now. I don't know anything about you as a listener. Find people who know your context and who are willing to listen to your context and then give you advice. Because there's lots of people who you ask for advice and they like, you get one sentence in and they tell you 15 things that they did. The people who are most valuable are the ones who you say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. And they ask you 10 clarifying questions before they tell you anything. So I found that to be a big differentiator in the quality of advice that I get. So look for, for getting high quality advice. That's very interesting. Uh, I love that. And I think one of the biggest skills you can develop is learning who to take advice from and who not to take advice yeah. from. And I de definitely tend to lean towards the... Um, only take advice from people that you want to be like, because if you take their advice, you'll end up exactly like them. And I think that's really essential for people to understand. You can get good advice from people who haven't done what they say that they want you to do, but it just seems to me that's the guiding principle that I kind of follow. Take advice from people that you would want to be like, because th that's how you're going to become like them. That's what I think. I think that's a great, great way to frame it. Totally agree. Yeah. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's been a real joy. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and, and keep pushing on this. We need more. You got it, man. And we're getting more. See you tomorrow on the next episode. Peace out, everybody. Cheers. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.